This is a HeadGum Podcast. Vulture's Good One Podcast is sponsored by ABC's The Alec Baldwin Show, airing Sundays at 10, 9 central. No monologue, no band, just Baldwin and good old-fashioned conversation with interesting people like Ricky Gervais and Jeff Bridges. Don't miss it. Hello, welcome to Good One, a podcast about jokes. I'm your host, Vulture Senior Editor, Jesse David Fox. This week's guest is comedian, podcaster, host of The Chris Gethard Show, author of the new memoir-slash-self-help book, Lose Well, Chris Gethard. I was thinking of introducing him as an improviser and stand-up comedian, but that's the thing we talk a lot about in the interview. So around 2011, when I moved back to New York, Chris was easily one of the best four or five improvisers in the city, and then I remember him just not being at the UCB as much, and then at all. Around the same time, I'd see him more and more at stand-up shows around the city. As a side note, we both lived in the same neighborhood at the time, so I'd also see him at my friend Claire's coffee shop. Anyway, so at the time, this shift from improv to stand-up seemed staggering, but in the years since, it has settled in. Chris hasn't done improv since, and has since had a Comedy Central half-hour special and his one-man show, Career Suicide, air on HBO. He also got passed at the Comedy Club's Comedy Club, The Comedy Cellar. We talk about all of that, as well as the one joke that sort of taught him how to write a Chris Gethard joke. So, from his album, My Comedy Album, here is Mother's Day. The following happened to me two years ago on Mother's Day. I went home to New Jersey, where I'm from, had a lovely day with my mom and my dad, just the three of us, it was great. I'm getting ready to leave for no reason, prompted by nothing. My mom goes, hey, do you want to hear a story that I've never told anyone? I went, okay. And she said, great, it's about your birth. (laughs) My dad went, I've never heard it? And she went, no, I've never had the heart to tell anyone this story. (laughs) She said, when you were little and the other kids used to pick on you for having such a big head, it always broke my heart. Because I knew that when you were being born and you started crowning, like when you were emerging, the doctor took a step back and shouted the words, my God, his head, it's as big as a bowling ball. That's how my life began. It's the very first thing that ever happened to me. I hadn't yet escaped the birth canal and I was being mocked by a healthcare professional. So she told me that story. She thought I was gonna find it funny. Instead, she saw that I was kind of reeling from it. So she made a joke to cover her tracks. And the joke she made was, well, at least you'll never know how many stitches they gave me. And I went, oh my God, how many? And she got real serious and went, no, you'll actually never know, because I don't know. They refused to tell me. And I said, I am so sorry. And I have to tell you guys, apologizing to your mother for being born on Mother's Day doesn't feel good. Doesn't feel good. So she said that. They refused to tell me. I said, I'm sorry. And that's when my dad jumped in with his joke. And he said, actually, you should be apologizing to me for that. 
So that's how I spent my Mother's Day. <laughs> Apologizing to my father for just ravaging the vagina of my mother with my bowling ball head. I am here with Chris Gethard and his bowling ball head. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. As the hairline recedes, the bowling ball head is only getting more evident. Before we start, I wanted to get a sense of your relation to stand-up at this point. I feel like 2011, 2012, when the Chris Gethard show started picking up on public access, that was sort of an inflection point those years. But I feel like I actually don't know when you were doing stand-up while you were also sort of like making a name for yourself at UCB. So before sort of 2011, how often were you doing stand-up? Where were you doing stand-up? What is your sort of relationship to stand-up? It's a great question, and uh, one I get a lot, and definitely a question that's indicative of the fact that I've maybe pursued my own career in manic fashion that makes it hard to sort out. Uh, Started as an improviser. Uh, My transition into solo work came in 2006. I really wanted to start doing solo work, so I started a, a storytelling show at UCB. It's actually still running. It's called The Nights of Our Lives. I haven't done it in many years but I'm astounded that it's still going strong after 12 years. And that was my effort. There were just a lot of great storytellers. Um, the ones that kind of became the core of the show were Curtis Gwynn, John Flynn, and Anthony Atamanik, who many people know right now as uh, the world's greatest Trump impersonator. And those, me and, and, and those three, and then a kind of rotating crew of other comedians uh, would go up every month and tell long-form stories from our lives. And in the course of doing that show, we would invite a lot of the Rafifi scene Um, because there were a lot of UCB people going out to those Rafifi shows and doing characters. That was like the more experimental stand-up. And just to sign out, Rafifi was a, a, I guess, a bar in the East Village. I think 11th Street, if I remember right. Yeah, it's now wherever the East Village Buffalo Exchange is. Eugene Merman, like, settled it and then like it became a thing where every night of the week there. Eugene had a show called Invite Them Up on Wednesday nights and then they realized that comedy fans were flocking there and by the end it was, I think, every night yeah. Um, pretty much every night they'd have a comedy show. And there were a lot of burlesque shows and things. It wasn't a dedicated comedy space, but it was like a hub for cool comedy. And we used to have a bunch of those people up. John Mulaney did the show a bunch of times. Bigley did the show a bunch of times. Joe Mandy, Jenny Slate. Um, a lot of the best people from Rafifi were coming up. And then they ran shows and they would invite me to come tell stories on their shows. And what I found is I would go and I would bomb because my long stories felt like... Um, stand-up that was all set up and no punchlines. Mm-hmm. But when I was a kid, as many of us would say, I didn't know improv existed. I had never heard of it, but I was obsessed with stand-up. I loved stand-up and uh, always had it in the back of my mind that that was kind of like the distilled, pure version of comedy. Um, I have a lot of opinions about stand-up and improv, and um, I am obviously someone who straddles the world and doesn't totally buy into like the combative thing that's reared its head again in the mm-hmm. past few years, but... Uh, I always knew, I always viewed improv as like, that's that's comedic acting. Stand-up is comedy. So when I had these opportunities to get on stage, I started uh, really getting obsessed with the idea of like, I have to crack this. And I, I remember the first time I told a joke that I felt like, oh, that's the difference between stand-up and storytelling. It was that big, terrific. It was a joke that I still remember that was pretty, uh, pretty up and down. But I remember telling this story and being thinking to myself, I got the beginning, middle, and end. And then this one detail got a big laugh. And I remember hearing in my head, just my brain yelled at me, that's the punchline, that's the punchline. 
And I got off stage that night and I was scribbling down that I had that instinct. And it's the first time I realized, oh, when you're telling stories in a stand-up context, they don't need to know the end. They don't mm -hmm. really care about the end as long as you really, you can deliver all those details through the funniest parts. And, you know, I'd be getting booked on these shows. I remember Pete Holmes put me on a bunch of shows and I would just go and eat it. And um, I think it was probably 2008 or 2009. My brother was a very, very funny guy who he does comedy in Philly, not professionally. He, he entered a comedy contest and he's a weirdo. And he, he entered this contest and told me, I, I want to disrupt it. I don't like the idea of contests. Let me go ruin it. And uh, I, I was like, I got to go watch this. And that was actually a really illuminating step in my stand-up career because I went and, and watching some of these comics who were on stage for the third or fourth time, watching some people bomb during a contest and sweat it out, I realized, oh, I have not paid my dues. I should not be on stage with John Mulaney and Pete Holmes and Mike Burbigley. I should not be going on stage with Hannibal and Kumail right now. I don't need to be doing whiplash right now. So I actually took a few years and voluntarily went back and did a whole bunch of like bar shows and mm -hmm. and uh, lighter shows. So around 2006, solo work. Around 2008 is when I really locked in and was like, I want, I want to conquer this. And then... I largely abandoned improv in about 2012 and have focused primarily on stand-up as my live performing ever since then. Comedically, what was the decision to be like, I can't sort of uh, be part of this community right now? In terms of UCB? Yeah, yeah. Well, I always say, I was like, when I found it in 2000, it was punk rock. And at a certain point, it was new wave. Still very cool, still very hip, but not grungy, not underground. I don't know that it's necessarily a place that I would feel totally comfortable as a 19-year-old mm -hmm. was one thing I was realizing at the age of 32. The other thing was, I would say there were, there were a couple of things comedically. One, I had started doing the Chris Gethard show. I had started really falling in love with stand-up. When you're doing all sorts of stuff that you're the only one who gets all the credit, you're the one whose name is on it, that's not necessarily a great mentality to be an improviser with anymore. Um, the other side of it comedically, it's going to sound very arrogant, but I, I do, I write about this in my, in my book too, is I started doing improv when I was 19 and I did it at least, I mean, I was doing improv at UCB in UCB's formative years and then it's golden age between performing, taking classes, teaching classes, minimum four to five times a week, every week from 2000 to 2012. Mm -hmm. I was burnt out on it. And also if I'm being a little arrogant, it had started to feel a little too easy. Yeah, I knew what worked at UCB. I could walk out there. I could be on my phone backstage until the second they called my name and I could go out there and I could crush. And I am just of a mentality where that's not okay. I am my father's son. My father is a hard worker. And if I'm not working hard, what am I doing? And uh, didn't want to, didn't want to become, you know, your, the, the cliche archetype of the, uh, the improviser who didn't know when to hang it up, you know? So uh, let's talk about this joke. The album was recorded in 2013. Uh, you say uh, Mother's Day two years ago. Is that true? It <laughs> Or is that comedy true? I believe it was true. It was definitely true in one sense or the other, um, but I believe it was. I'm trying to think of when my parents moved out of their house in Jersey because it was around then, and I believe it. I believe I did keep the length of time honest. But in general, like how much do you care about the truth of sort of these details? If they could see 
through their earbuds, the smile spreading across <laughs> my face. Well, it's it's, it's a very hard. It, <laughs> well, it's hard because I am known. I think one of the things I have as a reputation as a performer across the board is that I'm overly honest, and I I know that. So it's a really good question. Uh, my wife often yells at me, "What you're saying isn't true," and I go, "Yes, but it is." And she'll go, "But you're leaving out all of this context," and I have to because she is an artist in her own right, but she's not a comedian. I have to say part of the skill of being a comedian is that I can tell something that is technically true to the last breath and leave out all the context that makes it less funny, whether it's because it's too dark or too boring or too logistical, whatever it is. So one of the things I would say that I've reserved the right to do in a couple of my favorite jokes, obviously not this one, is there are some stories that are very true that um, I make myself more of a central character mm -hmm. for. Because that is, as I've found over the years, someone is much, an audience that needs to consume a lot of details, which for a storytelling style comedian, they need to get all the context, all the exposition in as quickly uh, a way as you can give it to them. It's just easier to go, that guy did this thing versus me going, so there was this person. and da, 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 da. So there are times where I become a little bit more of a central figure, more of a central witness to things. But all that being said, that that is the major cheat I will do, and I, I only have done that maybe three or four times in my in, in anything I've ever told. And I, I'll also put the caveat just for anyone listening: career suicide. There was a dedication to truth above all else, more than any other joke you'd ever see me do in a club, because I knew there were there were a number of things that I knew. This like my director or or Judd would say to me, "That's really fucking funny." fact check and I'd go, yeah, I got to put that, I need to save that one for a regular stand-up set because I knew that one had some social responsibility to it where I couldn't bullshit people. I yeah. couldn't be as much of the, uh, you know, snake oil side of stand-up. So uh, back to this, uh, the joke at hand. Yeah. Uh, when it happened, were you like, you know, I, I like to think of comedians have like a spidey sense of like material, especially when they're on their game. What happens when that moment happens are you living it? Do you have 10 minutes later, you're like, that was really funny? Like, that idea of you're a person living a life, but you're also living a person, observe, you're a person observing said life. Yeah. It's, uh, I, I'll say this speaks to a, a weird glitch in my writing process that's, uh, that is part of why it takes me longer to generate new material. And I bet most comedians don't say this. I do have a running theme in my life where things will happen. They will be stories I tell amongst friends casually and... They will be things that were a little cringy or awkward or painful, and then years later I will go, okay, now I'm ready. To, now I'm ready for the joke. Like this oh, one was two two and a half years. Career suicide came out in 2017, and most of the story stops in 2012. That's not a coincidence. And if you look at a lot of my work, like I told a Bonnaroo story on my Comedy Central uh, half hour that I'm very proud of. That was that was not out there until a few years after uh, after I had processed what it meant to fall off the wagon. The my my newest joke that I just started working on this week is about something that happened on my honeymoon. That was four years ago. So I tend to have things happen, let them percolate, let them kind of go to bed. And then once there's some emotional distance, I, I bring them back and work on them as jokes. So what was then the process of exorcising that joke from your your life brain to then your art. The big thing I remember is calling my brother and being like, mom just told me that my head was as big as a bowling ball. The doctor yelled it. It was, dad was the dad said this cringy thing. 
And he's just going, oh, why are our parents like, you know what I mean? Like, I remember that being the initial reaction was share it with my brother. To me, that was always the thing. My mom told me a doctor yelled about my head being as big as a bowling ball. And then the whole process surrounding it is to go up and know, well, that's the core thing. How do I package that? What's the delivery system for that? This was the first joke that I think I put my writing process together. Mm -hmm. This was the first one where I really figured out how I write. That It's the first joke. And in fact, it's the only joke even on that album I would say, where I felt like I was on top of the joke more than chasing the joke. It was the first joke I can remember that really had that. It was also my closer forever because it was the first time I knew I know this one back, backward and forward. As we listen back to it today, it's honestly not as good as I remember <laughs> But it did. It was the one that I knew in sets. Yeah. It was like, and now I can pull this shotgun out of my bag and go, because I know it. And I know why it works. And I know why I wrote it the way I did. And it was the first joke where I can say that every step of the way, I know why I did what I did with it. There's many ways a comedian can take just that one thing that a mom would say. Right. Yeah. I was thinking like, you could just, I was thinking of like, what is the shortest version of that joke, which is, um, like you go on stage, it's like I know what you're thinking. I feel bad for his mom or whatever. Right. And then you just like talk about your bowling ball head. I mean, this could be as simple as an aside within a large. It could be a self-deprecating aside yeah. within a larger joke. Why was this the version that was this at the time? It was this. When I saw Berbiglia do my girlfriend's boyfriend, I realized these are stories. But I had done enough stand-up to realize he, he's pretending these are stories as much as they're stories. This is punchline, 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 punchline. Mm -hmm. And I'll never forget feeling. It's like I'm watching like a hockey player who can just stop on the ice, who can just like be going full speed ahead on ice and then just stop and then go in the other direction. I really went on a, a, a real mission at that point after seeing that show to think about where are the punchlines? How much of the story can you tell via the punchlines? And this was the first one where I felt like I went through that process start to finish and knew how it worked. So how do you actually write you know writing for comedians can mean a million different things for me it's go on stage do it over and over i rarely write things down um like i have my i oh i have my joke notebook with me now you'll see like this is most of how i write is these the, each one of these things here is an entire joke in my mind and it, they're largely just like sentence fragments some of these are seven minute long stories that I know and it's eight or nine words in a notebook is what I actually write down and then what I do is I go up and I tell them and when I get off stage I'll do things like this where I'll put it in quotes because mm -hmm. that's a line I improvised that worked and then I try to incorporate that next time and even if like three minutes into said seven minute story you remember you'll remember a line 10 minutes after right and I run off stage and I try to run them down quick and then I also have a policy which is that if something hits and it's not good enough for me to remember it 10 minutes after I get off stage, it's probably not good enough for the joke. So let's, I was thinking there's sort of five clear beats to this joke, and it might work to sort of walk through all of them and, you, and see if you remember sort of why you decided to have it be that way. Yeah. So the first sort of beat of the joke is the setup, which also gets laughs because people don't know what you're going to say. So it's just like, oh, right. your mom's surprising you with... You want to hear a story I never told anyone, which is the first laugh. And then it escalates to, I never had the heart to tell anyone this story. There's also a stopping point. It's about your birth. And yeah. that's when it cracks open with the audience because they go, oh, shit. Uh, okay. 
you know, like it's a conversation with your mom, which is universal. It's about your birth. You don't want to hear it. Everybody knows I wouldn't want to hear this story. They understand that that's what I was feeling. In retrospect, would it possibly be like, oh, you know that's in the middle part or the pinnacle of the joke is the bowling ball part. You're like, okay, well, I need a part ahead of it. Let's build up tension. I need them to ask the question, oh, what the fuck is this going to be? Everybody, you know, some people are estranged. Some people have lost them. But every, by definition, you, you have a mom. Yeah. You have a mom. And for a lot of us, we're luckily, we, we know our moms. And you have conversations with your parents at some point that you wish you didn't have, whether that's about sex, whether that's about whatever. I needed to set the stage where I'm effectively going. My mom had one of those conversations with me. You've had those, right? Yeah. Sit in, settle into your seat and remember the feeling of, oh, I'm about to hear something from a parent I don't want to hear. It's trying to set up the universal side of, we've all had this happen, here's mine. Imagine this happened to you. Yes. And then, so then it goes to the sort of, this is the thing, the doctor steps back which is already like, well, that's a weird thing to happen. And then maybe you, it's almost like they're almost piecing together what's about to happen. And then he says, my God, uh, his head, it's as big as a bowling ball. And that's as that's essentially what happened. Yes, it is. I should have picked a better joke, especially for someone who's insecure about not being known as a stand-up. I have better things that are funnier and harder hitting. I just like this one analytically. It's good because it is clear. Like there's there's five as I uh, why I did this way. Like I don't right. do this usually. There's five decisions that you obviously made. Yeah, and there's some things I like about it in relation to those decisions. I'm glad you're framing it that way because there's some things I like to try to do. Um, and the line we're talking about now is one of them, which is this feels to me like an audience might think, okay, yeah, we okay, that's it. That's the end of the joke. Mm -hmm. It's a self-deprecating thing. I'm known for being a self-deprecating guy. At this point in any given set, I've probably made fun of myself or the way I look three or four times already, and it feels like, oh, this is the pinnacle of that. That's a really big, cringy one. It came from his mom. Um, it feels like it's probably the end. But then with the next steps in a way that I always like and something that I think Birbiglia's joke differentiates us is I make it just a little bit of a downward spiral yeah. and a little bit more fucked up. I, I wrote, it feels per particularly Gethardian. <laughs> yes, it feels like it ends goofy. And that's how my life began. <laughs> that's how my life began, yeah. And it starts to become a little bit more of a philosophical, analytical dissection of myself in a way that denotes some sense of hopelessness, right? When I say that's how my life began, I'm effectively saying I was destined to be this guy fucking forever. And that's the part of my persona on stage that I'm pushing pretty hard at that point. So then it's like, how do we get out of this hole? As a Chris Gethard joke story often is about, huh. getting out of a hole. So is this part, how true is the, the next part, which is your mom being like, well, the stitches part to then set up Very the dad true. part, which is like him making a joke about his sex <laughs> yeah. life. That's all true. All of that's true. This is a particularly true joke. I, I always remember that joke had a little bit of a tricky part where I never, I never quite figured out one line, and you can feel it in the recording. Um, there was a very upper up that line of um, apologizing to your mother on Mother's Day. It would always get a laugh when I'd go, on Mother's Day, and they go, oh, motherfucker, mother he heard all that shit about stitches and mm. 
getting yelled at by a doctor. And now that I have more five or six more years of writing behind me, I would just walk away at that point. I would just let that laugh float out there, let them complete the sentence however they want in their mind mm -hmm. and walk away. But I, you can feel the weakness in the part where I go, it doesn't feel good. And then it doesn't get the laugh I want. And I repeat it. It doesn't feel good. And I try to squeeze a little bit more of a laugh out of it. And that happened the entire life of this joke where that stretch sometimes got the laugh I wanted, sometimes didn't. And now I am a little more savvy to know I should have not completed the sentence. They were completing it in their head anyway. Walk away. Get to the next joke. Those are words that didn't need to exist. You just would have to believe the laugh will sustain you until the time was to then be like the joke is not over. Yes, and believe that the laugh matters. And that's one thing I've had to learn is that there are certain times where if they laugh, they are effectively saying, oh yeah, okay, we get it. And if they're telling you that with the laugh, you have to have confidence in that. And then so it has a, a button, as you would say. It ends with like, and this is the end of the joke. Yes, a little bit. Maybe a little bit too much. I will say this, it, do, it, does, it is heavy-handed on that to defend myself. I'll also say it was the last track on an album. Mm -hmm. So I think it was a little more warranted to have a moment that really sounded final. Yeah. I think that was something that was more calculated. I think in the course of a regular set, I would have just thrown away the ending a little bit. More. Yeah. I mean, it's just sort of, you make such a thing about how you're ending this story and it's like a two minute story and then there's right. no real. Compared thing to some of my other stories, yeah, yeah, yeah. which will be six, seven, eight, nine, ten minutes long in the course of even, I'll now tell a 10 minute story at a club set, which a few years ago to me would have felt like self-sabotage of the highest order. But that's what I said. That's part of why I picked this one and why I like this one is because you can see. And again, not everybody knows me for my stand-up, but if you know my stand you know, sometimes it gets really long. But this joke is kind of the uh, Rosetta Stone that helped me figure out how to write everything I wrote afterwards. You can expand out from it. Yes. yes like you can essentially have those five parts be two minutes each, and then you have a 10-minute yes. story. A lot of the rest of my writing has been figuring out how to take what I learned from this joke and how much muscle can I pack, how much joke and punchline muscle can I pack onto what I learned from writing this joke. The joke is uh, also a bit of an origin story. Yes. <laughs> what is the... I love telling my own legend, <laughs> yes, as you know. I... Oh, you... Who's better at telling the story of himself <laughs> What is the... You know, an origin story is to a superhero as this joke is to you. What is sort of the superpower or whatever that is suggesting? I feel like when I'm at my best and when people respond most to my comedic work, I make myself vulnerable to a degree where they can feel me going, I know I'm the one up here with the microphone and I'm a confident, capable performer. You can trust that. But I, t I tell you, I feel like as much or more of a piece of shit on a daily basis as, as you guys do. Like, it goes back to the UCB days, which is I've never been the funniest one. So I better really understand how this works, you know? I feel like one of my goals is when I get off stage, like when you're talking to me at the show after the show, I want people to go like, how'd that, how'd that fucking guy get on that <laughs> bill? How did he get on that bill? And then... Somebody else go, yeah, but like he kind of was the best one. For a joke like this or all your stuff, did you ask your mom if you can do it? Is that a speech that you like? Is that a conversation you had to have like 15 years ago? <laughs> I do. I mean, my parents, I very often, usually what I'll do is I'll work on the jokes until they're really good to make sure it's even worth 
asking them. I've had that conversation with my parents a number of times. With Barb, you can imagine sure. career suicide. I had that. What a trippy thing. Um, and she actually came and saw it live off Broadway, and then gave me notes—not creative notes, but notes on here's parts where you're twisting or misrepresenting what I do to a degree that presents me as an unethical medical professional. I can't have that. The big shift is since I've gotten married, I don't work on jokes that involve my wife unless I have the thumbs up first because I live in a house with her. Mm -hmm. My parents I don't live with anymore, so I can wait till it's good and I can go, hey, check out this funny thing, but does it hurt your feelings? My wife, I, see, I look her in the eye every day. I got to check first. It's like, oh, how's your set? What'd you talk about? It's like, oh, you know, just. And she asked because she's interested in support. But it's funny, you know, because she said something to me that made me a better writer, too. She was like, I don't care if you write jokes about stuff I've said or stuff we've done together. She's like, I don't even care if you twist the context. She's like, but I don't think it's fair when you present me as something I'm not because it's the easy way. Yeah. And that was a good reckoning and a good note. That she just wants you to be a better writer. Just be a better writer. If you have to claim that I'm a nag when I'm not to get to a punchline, you need to step your game up. And there's a lot of truth to that. I was listening to an interview you did with Todd Barry, and uh, you were saying that you're proud of career suicide. You're proud of how much you worked on it, but uh, you're insecure about it's being stand-up or not. Are you fake comedian for doing a one-person show? Which yes. is sort of like a conversation that is in vogue once again uh, with Nanette. Well, Jesse, <laughs> not to get too into it. Sure. Where were all the think pieces about my <laughs> unfunny comedy? Where were all the think pieces debating whether or not I was trading in laughs for points? How many times am I going to come in 18 months ahead of the cool thing? How many times? Happened with the Gethard show? Happened with career suicide. I'm always doing stuff that critics are like, there's something here. Mm -hmm. And then two years later, they're like, this person nailed it. And I feel like I did the fucking prototype. I have so many thoughts about it. And I'm trying to think of which one's most interesting. One, I, th I think it's probably partly because you do so many things. Yes. <laughs> okay. Self-sabotage. To answer your question. One, you do so many things. Two, I you multiple times say your goal is... <laughs> to have a thing that people in the future will reference as being ahead of its time. Yes, I want to be the Velvet Underground, but I don't want to have to live the life of the Velvet sure, Underground yeah. along the way. How do you feel about it now? Now that it now that you are ahead of the curve, or you know, in so much as the you through Nanette, you can see the debate that yes, we're would clearly have had. mentioning Nanette, sure, and a few other things, yeah, for sure. of course. Um, well, okay. First thing I want to say before we say anything else about Nanette, just to make this clear, is that the second I watched it, the very first thing I walked away thinking was like, holy shit, that took guts. That took guts. Um, it was the very first thing that I thought. And uh, I want to say that I applaud it. And I strongly agree with so much of what was said. One thing I will say is that one of my primary goals with career suicide and one of the things that I lived and died by to the point where I almost pulled the pro plug on the project a number of times was I'm a comedian and the way that I have earned the right to have a platform is through being a comedian. And there were so many stretches of the show 
that I knew if this is not at least 55% funny, I don't want to do it. And I bent over backwards to make sure that was the case. I bent over backwards to make sure that I would stand by it. I knew if I, if this is not at its funniest moments, as funny as anything else I can write, then I am exploiting my own pain and my own story. Uh, and I don't want to do that because I think that's a discredit to other people who have walked similar paths. I also knew there were some stretches that were extremely funny and where this was Judd in particular had a, a few moments of reckoning with me where he's like, that's one of the funniest parts of the show. It also does not fit the rest of what you're talking about, and that is cheap, and it's insecure. So the times where I had to pull things that I thought were funny, some of the funny, like top tier, top 25% of the funniest parts of the show, and I had to pull them, and that would kill me. So I'm like, oh, God, now I need to make this other harder stuff funnier. I felt like the thing that spoke most truly to me and the many years I've spent doing comedy was to try to crack the code on how to merge them. I think the idea of walking away from one for the other felt like in many ways it boiled down the points in a way that made them clearer and harder hitting and more effective. In other ways, I think there might be some elements to which it may also make your job a little bit easier. And maybe the harder thing to do is to replicate the idea that you can say the soul-crushing stuff, you can step away from the funny and break their hearts and whip it right back around. and. To me, comedy has always been, in my mind, one of the great working class art forms. It was for regular people. And I think that the laughs were the thing that, in my mind, earned me the right to talk about any of the sad stuff. I offer that up, I hope it's very clear, as part of this larger discussion about how I think about my own approach to my work and not a critique of Hannah, merely a comparison, because we did do something that is in some way similar. Yeah, you're not saying your way is better. You're just saying this is what she, you seeing her, you can see the decisions you didn't make to do it this way. And that's right. why, in explaining why but, you did it. But I had a very interesting reaction as well because when she talked about, I'm quitting comedy, fuck it, the rest of this isn't going to be funny. I think one, in the making of my special and in working on it for three or four years, I think I did earn the right to have a, a little bit more of a visceral reaction because I faced the same decision and I think I just went the other way. We'll be right back with more Chris Gethard. Baldur's Good One Podcast is sponsored by ABC's The Alec Baldwin Show, airing Sundays at 10, 9 central. Smart, sophisticated, provocative, the interviewee has become the interviewer. Could be a lot to handle. A good old-fashioned conversation with interesting people such as Ricky Gervais and Jeff Bridges this week. Don't miss Sundays After Shark Tank. We are back with Chris Gethard. So for the sort of first decade of your comedy career, you're associated with the UCB. And then uh, even as you're focusing more on stand-up and career suicide, I feel like you're probably most associated still with the Chris Gethard show. So you have sort of these both these collaborative institutions, one that you're seminal in sort of uh, codifying what its curriculum was and one that you sent was centered around you. Now that sort of you're, you're focusing on stand-up and the, you have a book coming out and this podcast, which is an interview, but it's essentially you yeah. on a phone. What is it like to be in a particularly solitary part of your life professionally? Not necessarily personally, right? Because you, uh, you have a family, yada, 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 but, friends and whatnot. Yeah, but yeah, like yeah. professionally, what does it mean to be creating particularly on your own? Um, I guess the short, nice answer is that it's a 
sort of a welcome change of pace. I love collaborating. I mentioned improv, why I felt like I needed to walk away. With the Gethard show, there was a lot of pressure on it. And at the end of the day, it was, you know, my name on it. My glasses were the logo of the show. And that's very fun and flattering, and I'm so glad we got there together. But also, that's a lot of heavy lifting. And even beyond the people you see on the crew, or on the show, like, there's the crew. There's cameramen. There's gaffer. There's... I always had in my head, man, there's like 70 or 80 people who have jobs. And if I fail, they don't have jobs. That's a lot. It's a lot. And I don't think anyone who knows my history with mental health would say that I'm built for that. And I think we fought the good fight for a number of years. I also think a lot of people involved with the show, their lives are moving in different directions. And not all of us have the same priorities as far as entertainment and careers and comedy anymore. So um, there was a weird thing where I think I remain an extremely ambitious person in what I think is a healthy way, but is certainly a very driven way. And I don't know if everybody else on the show felt that way in general or about the show. So it was time to move on and doing things that are smaller, less pressure, where if it fails, I'm the only one who has to worry about it. I don't have to worry about failing for this other many dozens of people. It's, it's a good change. So I had heard you talk to... Oh, on the Comedy Cellar podcast about how you didn't uh, audition to perform at the Comedy Cellar until after Career Suicide came out. Yeah, the week which it is, came out. Which is crazy. So w- why, you know, and you even said I think it's possibly a bigger deal for you to be passed at the Cellar than have an HBO special. So, so, so why? Well, it's, uh, it's the most competitive comedy stage in the world. And that's, despite being a pretty laid back, thoughtful dude, if you're a hard worker and you want to keep growing as an artist, find the challenging environments. I can't imagine an environment more challenging for a comedian, let alone a comedian known for being a sensitive, thoughtful storyteller than the comedy seller. My stuff should not work there, let alone on the shows they... I, I very often go up at one in the morning. It shouldn't work for me to tell a seven-minute-long story about how I got bullied. I don't mm-hmm. know if I told that one that you were there. That shouldn't work. So the fact that it does feels like an accomplishment. You said to Todd Barry one time that performing at clubs is the only way you know if your material is actually funny. What do you mean by that? I don't think jokes are truly good unless they're universal. So I want to know that they work in Brooklyn, which has traditionally been my home base as a stand-up. I want to know they work in Bushwick, where everybody else is also an artist. I want to know that they work down in Gowanus, where everybody uh, probably listens to NPR. I want to know that they work at The Stand, where everybody is probably, there's a lot more Jersey and Long Island people. I want to make sure they work in the clubs where it's all German tourists. I want to make sure it's the cellar, where it's like this rabid, hunker crowd. I want to make sure they work at UCB, where everybody is like hip and analytical. I want to make sure they work at colleges, where they might get offended. I want to make sure they work at clubs in every corner of the country. I want to just make sure my shit is universal. And clubs are the piece of the process where I know that they're funny. Brooklyn is the part where I know that they're thoughtful and intellectual enough. The road is where I know that they actually speak to people who aren't, you know, But what, I guess what it is about a club that is a better test of things being funny, in so much as I think the, the thing that I, that part of it, which I don't know if you're saying, or maybe you do believe, which is the comedy clubs are able to exist or are built upon a sort of idea that funny is funny. Right. And that idea is an incredibly specifically uh, a power structure maintaining 
philosophy, right? Yeah. Funny is funny. By that, I mean Whatever. what we already do, right. right? Funny is funny. That's why we have seven men on the lineup that I saw. And I don't know if I agree with that. I, I think I agree with that in a much more layered way than funny is funny. Comedians can say what they want. It's like, yeah, you can. Also, people can get offended and you can't be a baby when they do. If you just think you're allowed to say whatever you want because it's funny, sure, go do it. I support your right to do that. But then don't turn around and pretend that someone's violating your rights when it hurts their feelings. They're also allowed to have their feelings hurt and you're running that risk. Yeah. So the respect has to run in both directions. And if you're the artist, you're the one who's more culpable. So if someone gets offended at you and you roll your eyes at them and tell them to fuck off, you're allowed to do what you want, you're actually violating the contract that you're setting up because you're effectively saying it's a double standard that only applies to you. you only you are allowed to feel the way you want. Uh, a few weeks ago, Louis C.K. <laughs> returned to stand-up performing at the comedy cellar yeah. the club we're talking about after uh, much hubbub about it and club and the club considering the policy about him he performed there again yeah. uh, neither time he addressed uh, the things that he and was that being is, accused of and that is my and, big problem yeah to jump into it if I may sure do I believe in second chances sure and someone of Louis' skill level I think if he was to direct his energy in positive proactive ways could actually speak to everything that's happened and everything that he is responsible for in a way that maybe could further a dialogue in a positive direction. I think he is that skilled. The fact that he's chosen not to is not only disappointing, but it means that everyone else there, he will not take responsibility for it, which means the rest of us have to. And I don't like that. And I haven't been there long enough to uh, wag my finger, but I'm not the only one. And I, I do want it to go on record that there are a number of comics at the Comedy Cellar who feel this way or similarly. And one of the things I've struggled, there are people who will tweet at me, why would you still perform there? And the selfish side of it is, well, I worked for 16 years before I felt like I even deserved the opportunity. Should I trade that in because this guy did some things that are awful? I do think that when I'm thinking outside of myself, there is also a part of me that thinks that, is it a better place if I leave, not to put my, pat myself on the back too much because it's not just me, not speaking for anyone else, not, I haven't even had conversations with all these people, but when I see Ted Alexandro go up and put out a video of him sticking it to the Comedy Cellar, sticking it to Louis and doing it on the Comedy Cellar stage, I think it's probably for the best that Ted is there right now and getting stage time to do that. I'm very disappointed that Louis has not dealt with it. I think it's unfair that he just can wipe his hands of it, and then the rest of us have to get the tweets. I think with a few simple sentences, he could not only look better himself, but be gracious towards the rest of the comics who are on the bills. And I will say in defense of the comedy seller, I was very, very happy to see that Ted walked up there and tore them up and put out a video of it that got tens of thousands of views. When I watched it, I'm sure more now. And they were totally happy to take that criticism from another one of their comics. So it did extend in the other direction as well. And I was happy to read at one point that Noam himself echoed exactly what I had said. I had been saying it for a few days and I saw him say, you know, the fallout from this is incredible and it's it's not okay that Louis not the one taking responsibility for it. It sucks that the club has to. Louis is going to have to deal with that. Why he returned after that without doing that, I don't know. I haven't heard. I haven't been there in a week or so. But it, it sucks and I, I don't think it's, I want to go on record, I don't think it's the coolest thing that the rest of us have to deal with another guy's actions. You know, when you reserve a ticket at the Comic Cellar currently, you get a, at the top of it says, swim at your own risk, 
which um, I found to be a very funny, but also like kind of bizarrely hostile way of positioning yourself to the audience and specifically to what I think you've successfully done with your comedy, which is uh, you create a safe space for the audience that's controlled that that you are put into a more chaotic environment where like all the uncertainty is placed on you and then it sort of allows them to live in a sort of more dangerous space but not necessarily feel uh, unsafe how how do you feel performing in a space where that is the expectation of the audience i don't think it's as cut and dry an answer as people would like it to be i don't know that i fully believe that a comedy space has to be a safe space for the audience mm-hmm. So I think some of the most brilliant comedy I've seen over the years involves people saying things that the audience initially vehemently disagreed with. I think like everybody always puts Pryor on such a pedestal. Sure. And I think you look at a lot of his best stuff. I don't think that whole room was feeling safe when those bits started, maybe not even when they ended, you know? I think Chris Rock and Dave Chappelle say the same thing. I think George Carlin, you could say the same thing. Certainly a lot of people who show up knowing who those people are, what they're going to get and Whatnot, but I'm sure there's a lot of people who the first time they saw that stuff, it made them mad, but it was so funny that they had to consider the points behind it. And I think that that's actually an incredibly powerful thing. So I don't know that comedy needs to be a safe space for an audience, but I do think there's something to be said for. There's a difference between an audience feeling unsafe because of the ways they're being intellectually challenged versus the potential of someone who has been sexually assaulted being put in a position where they have no choice whether or not they watch someone who maybe they feel has not been, has not paid the price to an appropriate degree for an admitted sexual assault. There's a difference there. And in the one sense, it's like, yeah, swim at your own risk because you might hear things you don't like. You might see people that you walk away feeling like they're bad people and that's okay. But I, I wish that that phrase referred only to the experience you might have as far as what unfolds on stage and wasn't being used to accommodate so many things that happened off stage. A phrase like swim at your own risk will slowly create an audience that only wants that. Right. That and that that is not a problem for you necessarily like you you are welcome in many different spaces. And you don't necessarily need the comedy seller to be different things, but in so much that so much, so many comedians only play the comedy seller or places like the comedy seller. Right. It is the problem that people, when people had problems with club comedy about ten years ago, it was the sort of homogeneity of perspective that it's only the people who like jokes that are quote unquote offensive or pushing boundaries or whatever, and it makes it harder for a comedian like you, it makes your job not just sort of impossibly hard, but also sort of like, why do I even want to entertain people here? Like I was saying before, I want to entertain all types of people, but that is the thing that I would like to go on record and say, and and any reputation that I have as someone who I think is known, I think regarded as more on the progressive alt edge of comedy, um, who does perform that. I don't think the stereotypes from the outside of the comedy cellar are totally true. I think that if it only started speaking to the types of people who wanted the swim at your own risk experience, you're right, it would change things. And it would it would change them into an experience that isn't why the comedy seller is the best stage today. 
all perspectives are welcomed. And I think you're right. It would chase away certain perspectives and it, it would limit the club in a way that I think the club wouldn't want. I don't know. Again, I've only been past there a year or so. Yeah. And who, who knows? I just don't understand. And I've met him. He put me on his show. I opened for him at Forest Hill Stadium. I've met him a few times. I'm not close with Louis. I'm not someone who was in his inner circle. Um, I've had a handful of professional experiences with him. It seems to me like it would just be so simple for him to go on stage next time and go, everybody, I know I fucked up. Comedy Cellar has been my home for 20 years. It's really nice that they're giving me a second chance. I know not all of you want to. Maybe I can earn back your trust and respect to some degree. And uh, I feel like it could be that simple. And they wouldn't have to print anything different on the tickets. And I wouldn't have to be here on a podcast talking about <laughs> it. At the very least, it, you know, it doesn't go away. But it 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 defines the borders of who's a, who's responsible for it to him. Yeah. Not to me. The the people that are like, well, people can be redeemed and he admitted to it. He's not sort of denying these things, blah, blah, blah. To then come back and not say anything felt intentional. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's the thing I get. My my assumption, and who knows, like I said, I don't know Louis very well on a personal level. Um, but my assumption is that he's probably thinking. I would imagine some version of like, I'm just going to get back in there, put my head down and do the work. And I yeah. think that there's, that's fine, but it's just unrealistic. It's just not realistic. It's not like he's an author. He has an, his doing the work is in front of people. Yeah. And you don't know who those people are and you don't know, you know, you, 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 you and it, it, it's with a topic that's very touchy right now and, and, and should be. And, uh, again, I, 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 I just found myself throughout the whole thing just a little baffled that he wouldn't take the reins on that conversation because it's unrealistic to think there won't be a conversation. Um, you, you mentioned not knowing him, but you have talked about being influenced by him, as, yeah. as does tons of people. So I'm not being – you're think, the only one. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah I, I, yes, exactly. But I think you can you can see in my style yeah. this idea that I have stories that go a little dark, looking for the strong punchlines and the most awkward parts – clearly I came up in an era where he was an extremely influential person. I will say, uh, you know, after the news broke, I wrote a piece about the people that were influenced by him because, like, you could, even if you removed him from comedy, you can't remove the people that are already influenced by him. Same thing with Cosby. Yeah. And the thing that I was thinking about was, well, well all of us, the people that are influenced are still people from the last five, ten years. You know, and I, what I was thinking about was Lou is defined as this idea of like confessionalism. And there, it, confession is a word that comes from like, I'm going to tell you these true things and then you say I'm okay by laughing at it. And and I contrast that with comedians like Maria Bamford and Tig Notaro who will also reveal hard things that happen to them, but with the hope of like, we will be better together as a result of this. Mm -hmm. And I see both things in your work, I imagine all three are tremendous influences mm -hmm. on you. Absolutely. Considering all that, have you thought about your comedy as a result? Do you feel like it's changed? I think the honest and most simple answer is uh, no, I don't think my comedy has changed. But I think maybe my sense of what it means to be a comedian has. Because it's not going to change the way I write. And so much of what I do is rooted in being who I am on stage, mm -hmm. that how can I really change that? But I think that one thing that it would be obtuse to not realize, and that I realized, especially through the Chris Gethard show, is that for some reason, with a current generation of people, 
comedians mean a lot to people. And uh, I started realizing that. Like when we were on, when my show was still on public access and we left, there were people who were like, yeah, it's not my thing anymore. And I realized, oh yeah, it's because this is, this is like when Jawbreaker went from the independents to the major labels. It's, I know how they feel now. There's a yeah. little bit of that, you know? Like it meant something. Beyond the jokes, beyond, even if it was funny, it stood for something. I'm sure there's young people right now who uh, found their friends in high school because they both liked Reggie Watts and that meant something, you know? So it's 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 not something that you need to get on a pedestal about or self-aggrandize, but I think you just need to be a little bit aware of if you're someone who gains a certain level of uh, popularity or notoriety, that's probably because you're clicking with people for a certain reason. And I think uh, all of this has not changed my approach to joke writing or what will show up on stage, but I think it has been a, a real reminder of that. And that uh, that is a thing that you can't formulate or fake, but that you do have to respect and safeguard. Is, is it, you know, advice is a part that seems to be a growing part of your career in a way that you just don't see often comedians doing. I mean, like, I think the Chris Gethard show, especially the later two seasons, you'd be very explicit about, like, you want to leave you better than it's. And and the book, obviously, is the, your new book is also very heavy on advice. Is that is that why you sort of you felt this need from people that you realized people were receptive and were hoping for something? People ask me for advice a lot. Yeah, it's uh it's not something I'm trying to like foment. Yeah. In fact, I feel a little self conscious about it. I think at the end of the day, they sense that I am in many ways what I say I am, which is like a depressed dude from North Jersey who didn't think he could make it and somehow did, and I think that feels very accessible. And I think it's probably a lot easier to send me a Facebook message than it is to send mm -hmm. some other people, you know? There's probably a lot of people who wish they were asking for advice from Pat and Oswald, <laughs> but they don't have the guts, so they message me instead, you know? And uh, <laughs> I feel very flattered by that and also a lot of responsibility with that. And it's uh, yet another prong in my career that even I'm not certain what to make of. Do you feel like you're more creating because you enjoy creating than when you're creating for the result of it? Yeah, definitely. How does that feel? feels pretty good. <laughs> feels lower stakes. You know, it's a worry because I'm like, I, I just simply put, I don't have the same fire. I'm not as mad as I was. And I am 100% certain that means I'm not going to be able to force another show as weird as that one onto TV. I don't think I ever want to be the public face of another show again. I've tried it twice now very different ways and both times had real joys and real problems. The ability to just enjoy the work for what it is also reflects maybe a lack of careerism that has served me well over the years. But right now, it feels like a very refreshing change of pace. As a person who is constantly writing the narrative of Chris Gethard, it did feel like in the same way that there was a story that was going to end when you turned 36 that was you did the Chris Gethard show and you had career suicide. Yeah. And then there's that uh, idea of Ulysses after the war of like, well, now what I'm doing. Here's the problem what? with real life is the credits don't roll when yeah. things are over. The credits should have rolled. Once we sold the show to True TV, the credits roll. But instead, I got to be alive for 40 more years like a fucking asshole. <laughs> <laughs> 
that sound means it's time for our final segment, uh, oh. the lightning round. It's like a lightning round, but because it's comedy, it's a lightning okay. round. Do you have a favorite joke joke? Like a street joke? Uh, I had a joke that kids in my neighborhood used to say is unfortunately a Polish joke. It's the only joke joke that I ever remembered word for word. And it's not, it's not a good joke, and I don't even agree with it or what it stands for politically. But it's a joke about guys carrying stuff through a desert, and there's a Polish guy dragging a car door with him. And the last line is the same, why are you dragging? Why do you have a car door? And he says, because if it gets too hot out here, I'll roll down the window. That's a fine joke. That's like, I'm fine with that joke. If you could uh, steal another comedian's joke in a way in which you would be sort of removing it from their existence and placing it in yours so no one would know, yeah. but it's your joke, and maybe you know a little bit that you took it from someone else, but it's now your joke, and you won't get in trouble for stealing it. What joke would Salt it be? Salt and Pepper Diner, John Mulaney, <laughs> the Tom Jones joke. It's so funny because that joke demands, I would like to have lived that moment as well. But that fits. I love, yes, a good, exactly. I love living a good, ridiculous moment in that. And I love teenage fucking, like, yeah. shitty teenage troublemaking. I love it. That's what that joke makes more sense in New Jersey than Chicago anyway. It does, right? That is a Jersey diner driving everybody nuts. Did you want to share any of your maxims of comedy you said are on your laptop? The number one is it's never the audience's fault. I hate it. I hate how often I see people tell a couple jokes and then be like, I just the other night did a show with a guy. He tells a couple jokes and he's like, ugh. So with this crowd, I'd say you're a solid medium. And it's like, you know what? They're all thinking about you. You're a solid medium. It's not the audience's job to make the comic feel good. It's literally the comic's job to make an audience feel good. It's not their job to make you feel good. Work for free until you have to, then never work free again. Going up on a stage and throwing a bunch of unproven shit against the wall is workshopping. It's not work. You can go do that for free. So I usually ask this question, and it it's interesting because as a person tells stories, I, I don't actually know how it'll go, but is there a joke broadly defined of yours that you find funny, you always found funny, you'll go to your grave thinking it's funny, but an audience has never responded to it? I have one that I'm working on now that's never going to work, and it's about that song, The Monster Mash, and how, in my mind, the guy who wrote that is the most tragic example of one hit like there's one hit wonders and then there's the monster mash and that guy probably went to his agent at some point like hey check out my new demos and the agent was like get the fuck out of my face go do the monster mash yeah your new demos is it the cranberry mash is it the fucking saint patrick's day mash all right then why don't you pipe the fuck down and i think that's so funny and you're laughing now and well, i tried it on stage and audiences never ever ever laugh um, <laughs> I got nothing else. This is the end. You did it. Oh, great. Thank you so much. Please. Thank you. That's it for this week's episode. Chris Gether's Lose Well is available wherever books are sold. You can listen to Chris Gether's My Comedy Album on iTunes or wherever you buy music. You can watch Career Suicide on HBO Go and HBO Now. You can listen to Beautiful Anonymous wherever you stream podcasts. You can follow him on Twitter at Chris Gethard. Good One is produced by Mike Comite with research help from Matthew Silver. Justin D. Wright did our theme song. Write a review and rate the show on Apple Podcasts. Five stars, please. And hey, if you know anyone who, you know, might like the podcast, maybe tell them. What the heck? You can email any comments, questions, or laughing around suggestions to goodonepodcast at gmail.com. I'm Jesse David Fox, and you can follow me at Jesse David Fox. We'll be back next week with a new episode and a new joke. Have a good one. 
That was a HeadGum Podcast. <laughs>